A missionary was sitting in her second-story window one time, and she was handed a letter from home. And as she opened the letter, a crisp, brand-new $10 bill fell out. And she was pleasantly surprised as she read the letter, but her eyes were kept being distracted because she noticed some movement down on the street. There was a shabbily dressed stranger down below, and he was leaning against a post in front of the building. And she just couldn't get him off her mind. Thinking that he might be in some kind of great financial stress, she slipped the bill into an envelope, and which she quickly penned on the outside, Don't Despair and she threw it out the window. And the stranger below picked it up, he read it, he looked back up, he smiled at her, and he tipped his hat, and then he walked off. The next day she was about to leave the house when there was a knock at the door, and she found the same shabbily dressed man smiling as he handed her a roll of bills. When asked what they were for, he replied, that's the 60 bucks I owe you, lady. Don't despair, paid five to one. <laughs> I guess you really don't know what's going to happen when you try to do something for somebody else. <clears throat> Our theme for this section of scripture this morning in, first, in Peter's first letter is maintaining hope in an unfair world. How do we maintain hope when we're treated unfairly? when we might even be treated harshly? How do we keep despair from despair when we look around our world and we see the way that Christians are being persecuted and treated in many parts of our world? How do we maintain hope when we witness the political circus that's played out on TV every night these days? How do we maintain hope when the supposed rights of others more and more criminalize Christians? And in Peter's first letter, we see that we maintain hope when we understand that the basis of our godly influence in this world that opposes us, how we make an impact for the Christ and his kingdom in what can be considered even the worst of situations and circumstances, that which causes the most difficulty is that which also gives us the greatest influence for Jesus Christ in our world. And that which underscores the fact that we as Christians, and this is going to be a theme this morning, we really are as Christians America's best citizens in this regard. So please look again at 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 13. Once again, Peter refers to the suffering of the believers to whom he was writing. And if you've written in your Bibles, you know that we circled the suffering or suffered the circling one of those couple of times. We've looked at that. They were suffering on account of righteousness. They were suffering because they were zealous for what is good. And verse 13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove yourself zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you? I want us to look back and maybe review, we've heard some of these, some of the ways that the early church was threatened and faced severe harm. How they suffered for the sake of righteousness. And there we're, then we're going to talk and look at some examples from history, Christian history, how they responded to this and how we as believers are to respond to it. How they responded in a godly way that brings God glory. How it gives us our greatest potential influence in the world and how we live in such a way that our testimony becomes believable. That the transforming work of Christ is evident not only in what we say but in what what we do. But first of all, we need to look at some of what the early church was facing. 
The people to whom Peter wrote were being greatly criticized by those around them. It's hard enough when you know your life is an unearthly life. Our citizenship is in heaven. We live in the heavenlies, it says. We answer to a higher authority than any earthly authority. It's hard enough to be a good citizen of your community with all of that when it's compounded by the fact that the society in which you live is hostile to you. Maybe they're even persecuting you. And no doubt this was the case for those to whom Peter was writing. In fact, it was a rather common thing, and we saw this back in the first chapter of 1 Peter in verse 12, that Christians were called evildoers. They were slandered as evildoers. It's a term of derision. Apparently, it was used as Christians categorically. Instead of calling them Christians, they called them the evildoers. You see them in the marketplace, you see them in the street, you go, oh, those are the evildoers. And over the first centuries, couple of centuries of, of the church's life, it was pretty common for Christians to be not only living in an earthly society, but living in a society that was very hostile to them, and it was militantly anti-Christians. Anti-Christian. So, so first of all, there was a basic anti-Semitism in the ancient world. They resented the Jews, they hated the Jews, and Christians, to begin with, were viewed as just a sect of, of the Jews. And so they received a rather anti-Semitic sort of hostility. Uh, Appion, who was considered an expert on the writings of Homer at the time, wrote that in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews offered up human Gentile sacrifices to their God. It wasn't true. Nothing could be further from the truth. But that was simply one of the slanders that was against the Jews of the day and therefore is against the Christians. Now, the Christians were also accused of insurrection. They were accused of rebelling against Rome and all human authority. Literally, this was the basic reason by which the Romans engaged themselves in the crucifixion of Jesus. When the Jews said, we have no king but Jesus, and it became clear that Jesus might be a threat to Caesar, to Rome, that was why Pilate agreed to put Jesus to death, which of course, none of that was true. And over the, the life of the first three centuries of the church, uh, they, people felt that Christians had a hostility toward the earthly governments. As we saw in our study of 1 Peter, the early church was accused of atheism. And you go, how can that be? You know, there was a hostility. Oh, those guys are atheists. It's hard to imagine but it was true that anybody who lived in the Roman Empire would, who refused to worship the many gods of Rome, and especially Caesar as God, were considered atheistic because they didn't consider, the Christians didn't consider Caesar to be God. Of all things, the early church was accused of cannibalism. Cannibalism. You go, where did they get that? It came from what we're going to be celebrating this morning. A misuse of the misunderstanding and misuse of the words when Jesus said, this is my body, take and eat. Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Uh, furthermore, they accused Christians of immorality. They accused them of incest. They accused them of damaging trade among nations. They accused them of wrecking homes. They were home wreckers. Because they said the sword that fell between man and wife when a person came to follow Jesus destroyed the home. Uh, they accused early Christians of fostering rebellion because among the slaves, when a slave came to Christ, he had a new life. He had a new dignity in Christ. And they thought that as hostile to keeping the slaves in their place. 
They accused them of hating men because they were opposed to the world's systems. They accused them of being disloyal to ruling powers. And we've talked about that, especially to Caesar, because they'd only worship Jesus Christ. The Christians refused to go into a pagan temple and offer as little a sacrifice as a pinch of salt and declare Caesar as Lord, which in some places like Philippi, you had to do once a year. And in the midst of this hostile society, Peter tells Christians, you do not need to fear their intimidation. You do not need to be troubled at this. Instead of fearing their intimidation, instead of being fearful of this, Peter tells the suffering Christians in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ. What is our proper response to the hostilities of the world? It begins with sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. When intimidation comes, instead focus on Christ. Have a focus on Christ. Sanctify, as you know, is the same word that's translated holy. It means to set apart. Uh, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. In your hearts, give him that best, special set apart place in your hearts. Rather than being afraid, rather than fearing the persecutors, or fearing Satan who is behind the persecution, venerate Christ. Set your heart on Christ, if we put it another way. Honor Christ, adore Christ. Recognize he is holy, he is sovereign, he is glorious, he is majestic. He is to be the only object of your love and loyalty. Verse 14, it says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be be troubled. Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3 there. It's a paraphrase of it. And Isaiah 8, 13 says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, or set apart, sanctified, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. The setting for this quotation from Isaiah comes as Isaiah was prophesying to Ahaz, king of Judah. Ahaz faced a crisis because an impending invasion was coming of the Assyrian army. You might remember the Assyrians, they're the ones that eventually took over Israel, the northern ten tribes, and the Assyrians were the most feared people on the face of the earth, maybe one of the most feared uh, of all times. It has often been said that it was the Assyrians that invented crucifixion. Uh, that's the way they tortured and executed people. And this massive Assyrian army was threatening to come against Ahaz. And the kings of Israel, the northern ten tribes, came to Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern two tribes, along with the king from Damascus, which was eventually called Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. Uh, they came, the other kings came to Ahaz and says, we need to form an alliance together against the Assyrians. And then behind the scenes, instead of Ahaz going along with these other two kings to form an alliance with the, with, against the Assyrians, Ahaz went to the Assyrian king and tried to form his own alliance with Assyria to protect himself from the other two northern tribes. So, so then those two were threatening to attack Judah, and Assyria was still threatening to attack Judah, and everybody was coming at, at Judah. And God said through the prophet uh, Isaiah, Ahaz, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should consider as holy, whom you shall sanctify, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be 
your dread. What are you doing going to all these other guys and trying to get this worked out? Rather than fearing men, and he was fearful of them, rather than fearing men, we should sanctify Christ as Lord. We should fear him. Don't give in to some ungodly, unholy alliance thinking that somehow that's going to be the solution and that's going to be your salvation. What are you going to do? Who are you going to call? I had to think of that this week because they're advertising the new Ghostbusters on TV. and I never saw the movie, but <laughs> I've heard the song. Who are you going to call? Are you going to align yourselves politically or are you going to recognize the awesome glory of the Lord? Are you going to submit to his greatness? Are you going to submit to his perfections and submit yourself to his purpose? In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings, Paul or Peter saying, don't focus on the persecutor. Don't focus on trying to get some kind of earthly alliance going or some political salvation. You don't focus on the persecution. You focus on Christ. Sanctify him as Lord in your hearts. It's a deep, loving, loyal, confident submission to his will. And it's that in that that he gives us great courage. Focus on his will. You set apart Christ in your life. You worship Christ. You submit to him. You adore him. You're loyal to Christ. Submission to his will. And then that is when God displays his glory and works in your life. Peter continues in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. When Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, every crisis, every trouble becomes an opportunity for witness, for testimony. Always being ready to make a defense. Our English word apology comes from the Greek word apologia, which is translated there defense. An apologia is a defense. It does not mean to say you're sorry. That's not what it means biblically. Rather, it means a defense presented in court. A defense presented in court. Apologetics is the brand of theology that deals with the defense of the faith. Every Christian should be able to give a reasoned defense for their hope in Christ, especially in a hopeless situation. Does that make sense? We should be ready to give a reasoned defense for our hope in Christ, especially when in a hopeless situation. That's because that is when the world is watching. A crisis presents the opportunity for witness. A crisis presents the opportunity for us to show faith and hope because that's when unbelievers are going to take notice and say, what is it about them? And then it says a witness must be given with gentleness and reverence and not with arrogance and a know-it-all attitude. I'm just so glad Lori mentioned Pastor Eric today because that's exactly what he, he was doing. We need to remember we are witnesses, not prosecuting attorneys. We don't need to convince people they're going to hell. We don't need to show them all their sin and all those kind of things. We are witnesses, so that means that our witness must be backed up by our lives. Are we a good witness or a poor witness? Peter does not suggest that we argue with lost people, but rather that we present to the unsaved an account of what we believe, what our hope is, that we, 
what our faith is, and we do it in a loving manner. The purpose is not to win an argument. The purpose is to win souls to Jesus Christ. So that brings us back to the early church. When the early church faced persecution and all those hardships and false accusations that have been mentioned, and that doesn't mean that every church in every location on the Roman map was going through the same stuff all at the same time and all those kind of things. But of course there was ebbs and flows, but uh, basically, in a basic sense, they all lived in an environment that was hostile to Jesus Christ and, and, and to Christians. And during that time, it's those that we call the early Christian apologists. Doesn't mean they gave, said, I'm sorry, but they gave a defense for the faith. The early Christian apologists presented the gospel, an apologia, in a loving, respectful manner for the purpose of presenting Christ to a lost world. And one of the most colorful early Christian apologists was the North African by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian, he wrote volumes and all kinds of stuff. He lived about from A.D. 160 to 225, so at the turn from the second to the, the third century. And with gentleness and reverence and respect, during a time of great persecution, he commended the Christian faith to a pagan world. And I'm going to read a, a pretty lengthy in, uh, excerpt from one of his writings here in a little bit. And, and one of the really neat things, and I just enjoy this kind of stuff, is in his writing and the others that we're going to read, I'm going to read, we see the practices of the early church how they worshiped, how they loved one another, uh, how they determined the leadership of the church, even their financial giving. But most significantly, significantly, this is Tertullian's main defense. He says that the pagans said of the Christians, this is what the pagans said of the Christians, see how they love one another. They will know we are Christians, what? By our, our love. And Tertullian wrote in his Apologia, that's what he actually called it, talking of Christians, we are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by a unity of discipline and by the bond of a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This strong exertion God delights in. We pray, too, for the emperors, for their ministers, and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. Why would they pray for the delay of the end of all things? Because God had already said he wishes that none should perish. That's why he, he delays. He continues, we assemble to read our sacred writings, and with the sacred words we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast and no less by inculcations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits. In the same place, also exhortations are made, rebukes and sacred censures are administered. For with a great gravity is the work of judging carried on among us as befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God. And you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone has sinned so grievously as to require his severance from us in prayer in the congregation and in all sacred intercourse. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining the honor not by purchase but by established character. There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God, though we have made our treasure chest 
It is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if he likes, each one puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he is able. For there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. The gifts are spent, not spent on feast and drinking bouts and eating houses, <laughs> but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and of old persons confined now to the house. Such too has often suffered shipwreck. And if there happened to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say, how they're ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would sooner kill. Unquote. And we also have a remarkable example of an apology a defense and account for the hope in Christians when they were facing trouble from a Christian named Diogenes. Diogenes lived about A.D. 130, at least that's when he wrote this. In historical context, this would be about 35 years after the death of, of John the Apostle. And Diogenes writes, even though he's a Christian, he writes it in the third person. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe, they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor need a, lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them, has determined and followed the customs of natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. And now he's going to go through a, a, a series of what we call biblical paradoxes. Talking about Christians, he says they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Isn't that an amazing thing to say of Christians almost 2,000 years ago? They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet their dishonor, in their dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet they are justified. They are reviled, and yet they are blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, and they're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred, 
To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body that are Christians in the world. Isn't that an interesting thought? What the soul is to the body, that is what Christians are to the world. And I know I've read a lot of, of, uh, of quotes here this morning, but uh, one of the things we need to remember is that in the midst of the fires of persecution, Christianity always spreads like wildfire. You turn up the heat on Christians and the gospel, the gospel spreads. And so I wanted to read a quote this morning from Rodney Stark. He wrote a book on the early church and he gives us a fascinating summary of the influence of the early church, how it was the godly living, living of the Christians which affected the lives and the culture of people around them. He writes, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity reviled, re revitalized life in the Roman cities, providing some new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent social problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, ever heard of that recently <laughs> in our cities? Christianity offered a brand new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with earthquakes, epidemics, fire, Christianity offered effective nursing services. It was, it was remarked and, and made known that when they did have academics and disease and those kind of things in the cities, it was only the, the Christians who would nurse those who were sick because the pagans were afraid to come into contact with them. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Tertullian went so far to say that the Christians were the best citizens that Rome had. The Christians were the best citizens. And he stated, We offer prayers for the safety of our princes to the eternal. He also declared that prayer was given for the complete stability of the empire and for Roman interests in general. He said, We are lending our aid through prayer to Rome's duration. Rather than worship the emperor, Christians, he said, swear, for, swear to God for his safety. Tertullian was even so bold to as maintain to the pagan Romans. Now get this. He said to the pagan Romans, Caesar is more ours than yours because our God appointed him. And Christians do more than you Romans for his welfare. That is really kind of the main point, isn't it? Can we even begin to put that in our own nation and circumstances, what Tertullian wrote in his apology? Can we say, we offer prayers for the safety of our Congress, governors, city council, our elected officials, to the eternal? We offer a prayer given for the complete stability of the nation and for American interest in general? We are lending our aid through prayer to America's duration. We pray for the safety of our present president. And our SWE is so bold to pray that the president is more ours than theirs because our God 
appointed him. And as Christians, we do more than other Americans for our president's welfare. The early Christian apologists attested to the fact that whatever makes a person a good Christian creates a good citizen, arguably a better citizen than the average non-Christian. Why? Because Christians are concerned and care about in society what others don't care about. Love for the underprivileged, love for the unborn, love for the feeble, love for the dying. It was said for a long time that Christianity is a humanitarian religion that seeks for, for the best of, of people in life, in liberty, and at least in the early days of our country, every charity in the United States was started by Christians. Every hospital in the United States was started by Christians. You can go around the world today, you'll find hospitals started by the country of Yemen or someplace like that. You won't find any hospitals started by, by Muslims. You just don't find those things. Christians, because of their example and their message and the way they lived, show us that we need to continue to be good citizens because that's what the Lord expects from us. You know, the great early American statesman and orator Daniel Webster recognized this, and he turned it around a little bit, and it's probably the most famous statement he ever made. He says, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. Whatever makes them Christian makes them good citizens. So please turn over, and we'll close here, look at this briefly, to Paul's first letter to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2, the first verse of 1 Timothy chapter 2, page 1448 if you're using the, the Bible in the, the pew rack. The persecuted Christians of the first three centuries lived and breathed the truths of 1 Peter chapter 2. They knew how to put first things first. And notice what Paul says is the first thing. First verse of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, First of all, then, this is first, this is foremost, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Why? Why, Paul? Why is this so important? Why is prayer for, for kings and for all who in authority to be the first thing? And then he says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We are to pray for those in authority and for all those in authority as a priority so that we can live in the kind of environment where we can live in godliness and dignity. Put another way, we are to pray for those in authority so that we can live the lives that God wants us to live. And in living that life that God wants us to live, we can live in a way that influences those around us for the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he hits on here. What is the most important influence that God wants us to have in the world? It's our testimony and our witness to the world as God uses it to bring people to Jesus Christ. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's thought goes something like this. 
If you want your prayers to do the most good for the greatest number of people, as it were, be sure to include your prayers, those persons whose decisions create the conditions, those persons whose decisions create the conditions in which the purposes of the gospel prosper. It's important for leaders to pray for leaders because they are the ones that are making the decisions economically, politically, governmentally, in all kinds of ways these days that they, as we say, encroach upon our lives. They are the ones that make the decisions, that create the conditions. Is that condition going to be an environment where the gospel will prosper? You know, it's a tremendous way to pray. It's a tremendous way to go into the voting booth. Even if you do it in the presidential primary, Republican primary this Tuesday. Lord, lead me to vote for the men and the women who you will use to create the best conditions for the spread of the gospel. The best conditions for the spread of the gospel. For the spread of the gospel in Emmett. For the spread of the gospel in Gem County and the Treasure Valley and, and beyond in Idaho and in the great United States of America. You know, we don't pray for our leaders just because we're commanded to. We talked about that last week. But we pray for them because it makes practical sense. Our leaders can affect the conditions we, we live in and have an impact on our families, our churches, our workplaces, our cities. When those who are in authority are obeying the will of God, then it's easier to live in a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. So what do we do when evil men are in authority? We're to pray for them. I think of the prayer of, of uh, William Tyndale. Remember, it was William Tyndale who translated the Bible into English, and he uh, was persecuted for that and hunted for that. Finally, they tracked him down in Germany, and uh, they strangled him first, and they burnt him at the stake for translating the Bible into English. How did William Tyndale pray for the king of England? His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Within three years after William Tyndale prayed that and lost his life, King Henry VIII authorized the first distributed English Bible that was uh, approved in England. Within three years, God answered that prayer. And what Henry did not know was that the Bible that he approved was 95% William Tyndale's work. It was based on, uh, on his work. So even God does a great work when we continue to pray for those in authority. I want to close this morning with an anonymous prayer that somebody wrote that puts this into words for us. The prayer says, Today I pray for our nation. I ask that you would give our president wisdom beyond his own understanding and the courage to choose the right path no matter how narrow the gate. I pray for all in authority over us and that you would give them the grace and the strength to stand against the temptation to use power as a weapon, but rather to carry it reverently as one would a child. I pray for the spiritual leaders of our country that they would hear your voice and know your heart. I pray that they would lead from their knees, and by that simple grace, bring each one of us to our knees before your throne. Have mercy on our nation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.